at 6 p.m., all of our phones start vibrating, saying Christian Schmidt is going to amend the electoral law tonight. I think the view among the people who support what Schmidt is doing is that they are trying to get Bosnia to a position of functionality because the actual status of governance in Bosnia has deteriorated so severely over the past decade, decade and a half, that we're really now at an inflection. The situation has already become very, very dangerous, very, very delicate. And we've had numerous incidents in the region over the last few years that if things had gone just a little bit to the left or just a little bit to the right, we would be dealing with a much worse reality present. We've gotten lucky for a very, very long time. And luck runs out eventually. Welcome to part two of my discussion with Yasmin Mujanovic. If you haven't listened to part one yet, I suggest you do that first, as elements of the remainder of the conversation may otherwise seem out of context. In this part, Yasmin details the controversial decision taken by the High Representative to amend the electoral law on the night of the elections. He also explains the potential bias and conflict of interest that has cast a giant shadow over many of the High Representative's dealings in Bosnia. We discuss the role of Croat and Serb nationalism, as well as EU versus NATO prospects for the nation. Yasmin then provides some insights into the role Russia plays in the region, as well as machinations that seek to redesign the entire Western Balkans. We conclude with a realistic assessment of the likelihood of renewed violence in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Finally, if you're getting value out of the show, please consider becoming a patron of The Voices of War at patreon.com forward slash The Voices of War. Thank you. Now let's uh, let's get into the second contentious issue, to pull it mildly, particularly that's occurred on the night of the election. Right. Uh, so what happened? So again, I will remind your audience that this is exceedingly complicated, and and if they mm-hmm. feel like it's going over their heads, um, that's that's sort of the not point. to feel bad about. It. Yeah. No. I mean, literally, <laughs> it's it's like you know. yeah. <laughs> so here's what happens. Uh, we remember there is this person called the high representative, Christian Schmidt. Okay. So, and we also remember that we have these eight outstanding constitutional court cases. The most significant, not actually in content, but the most significant politically over much of the last year has been the so-called Ljubic decision by the Bosnian Constitutional Court. The Ljubic decision refers to the mechanism by which, all right, strap in, mm-hmm. the members of the federation entity House of Peoples are appointed. The House of Peoples and the federation entity is the upper chamber of the bicameral parliamentary assembly legislature of the federation entity. The of lower the entity. Of just, the entity. Yeah, not, not the state. Not just the state. Yeah, yeah, Though yeah. there is also <laughs> yeah. a state level House of Peoples. But... What's contentious is the House of Peoples in the Federation entity. And Boja Ljubic, who is a member of the HDZ, and also, it has to be said, previously sat in the Croatian parliament as an MP Mm. from Bosnia, from what Croatia calls the Croatian diaspora, which is a whole separate issue that we can get into. Um, Boja Ljubic 
sued essentially the state of Bosnia and said the the existing mechanism by which um, the delegates to the House of Peoples and the Federation entity are appointed because they're not directly elected by which they are delegated is discriminatory. And he said this Mm. or argued this because he said the, the provision within the existing constitution of the Federation entity, which said that all cantons in the Federation entity had to send delegates to the Federation House uh, of Peoples. They had to send delegates from each of the constituent groups. Mm-hmm. So Bosniaks, Croats, and Serbs from each of the cantons. And he said this was actually discriminatory because there are cantons in which there are so few members of the respective constituent groups that it's it's a form of essentially kind of usurpation of the legitimate uh, uh, democratic interests of those constituent groups. So, for instance, in Gorazde, the Gorazde Canton, uh, which is not its actual name, but for, for clarity, uh, mm-hmm. there are literally, you know, a, a couple dozen, we think, according to the, uh, to, to the census, Croats. So Ljubic said essentially, you know, why should that canton get a full Croat delegate when, you know, they only have a couple dozen Croats, whereas, you know, in, say, the, the you know, leave no canton, you have tens of thousands of Croats. And they, and they send the same number. Or they actually don't mm-hmm. send the same number. But uh, uh, nevertheless, the fact that Gorazde sends one at all is discriminatory. Now, here's the thing. Okay, so... So I'm just going to assume that the audience has understood everything that I've said to date. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The Bosnian Constitutional Court rules by a very narrow margin, by a one-vote margin, that Ljubic is correct, that this is discriminatory, and that this has to be amended. The Electoral Commission of Bosnia-Herzegovina makes some extremely minor, essentially technical amendments to Bosnia's electoral code. And the then office of the high representative, or rather the then high representative, Valentin Insko, an Austrian, interprets what the both the Lubitsch court or the Lubitsch decision says and what the uh, electoral commission subsequently does and says, actually, the Lubitsch decision has now been enacted through these mm-hmm. technical amendments. Maybe not as substantively as it could have been, but the high representative says, in his opinion, the Lubitsch decision has actually been implemented. The HDZ takes the position that it has not. And for the next four years, from 2018 until 2022, owing to their very, very expansive veto powers um, within the entity and that are embedded within Bosnia's constitutional system, this party that at at the entity level won 14% of the vote and at the national level won 9% of the vote, obstructs and blocks the government formation process at the entity. So the Federation goes four years without a government, only a government in a technical mandate, mm-hmm. because the HDZ is blocking everything they can on the grounds that the Lubitsch decision has not been implemented. Despite the fact that it largely has. Despite the fact that according to the arbiter of the actual Dayton Constitution, it has. And so this is now where we get to late 2021-2022. A new high representative is appointed under very murky and controversial grounds, which is a separate topic. 
the U.S. dispatches a election reform envoy. The EU does something very similar. And there's this big, big sort of full court press by the U.S., by the EU, and by the Office of the High Representative to get a new electoral law passed. And the reason why they're especially concerned is because they're aware that the HDZ, despite the fact that they've won only 14% at the entity level and only 9% at the national level, has such massive capabilities to shut down Mm. the governance process, not just about government formation, but block the appointment of judges. I mean, there's virtually no limit to what they can block because of these various Mm. kinds of ethnic vetoes that are embedded into the system. They really start getting concerned because they're getting concerned that regardless of the result in 2022, you're going to have a still deeper and more protracted political crisis in Bosnia, unless essentially the Ljubic decision is enacted in such a way as to satisfy the HDZ. Mm. Now, this is where we're getting into really the trouble of the, the process, because the political logic increasingly is not about what is, you know, affirming the rule of law, what is in line with European democratic standards, what is in line with the European Convention of Human Rights, but what will get the HDZ to climb down? Appeasement, in other words. Appeasement. (laughs) Okay, so in July of this year, leaks start coming through, available publicly through the media, suggesting that the high representative is preparing to use his so-called bond powers his executive fiat powers, to rewrite large segments of Bosnia's, uh, or specifically the federation entities' election laws and constitution in order to more substantively realize the Ljubic decision and also to de facto appease the HDZ. What is contained in those leaks is politically explosive. Because what Christian Schmidt and the OHR are proposing is what, and I'll be honest, I I described it in my writings as a blood quantum. So hearkening back to the era Mm. of uh, racial segregation in the United States. What they want to impose at the time in in July and the summer of this year is a so-called 3% ethnic threshold, i.e. cantons in which a specific constituent group does not constitute three or more percent of the population will not get representation within the Federation House of Peoples. So if you're not three percent of the overall population, you you just you you don't get representation. This is you know an earthquake. People are outraged, international officials are outraged, Schmidt is called out by MEPs, by British MPs, by the US Helsinki Commission. Um, there are mass protests in front of the uh, uh, headquarters of the um, of the OHR in Sarajevo. Some 7,000 people come out and Schmidt climbs down. But he climbs down, making it very, very clear that he is, A, personally very upset, and B, says, unless the Bosnian leaders devise a new electoral law of their own, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this anyway, or I'm going to do some version of this anyway. The problem is, again, this is July 2022. Bosnia is in the mm. middle of an electoral campaign. Mm. Um, the, the Central Electoral Commission has already declared that the election is underway. Mm. And the elections are in October. So he's mm. saying that between July and October, in the middle of an election campaign, you need to change the rules of both the elections and 
how government will be formed post-election. Mm. That obviously doesn't happen. October 2nd, the day of the elections themselves, the polls close at 7 p.m. I'm sitting in Sarajevo with a couple journalists and election monitors. At 6 p.m., all of our phones start vibrating, saying Christian Schmidt is going to amend the electoral law tonight. Now, this has been rumored. People, you know, people are no, but mm. but but still, mm. myself included, you know, we're sort of under the impression that surely he can't be this crazed. Mm. 7 p.m. Mm. rolls around, the polls close. I think it's within about 15 or 20 minutes thereafter that, you know, the main media outlets in the country, and I believe it was N1, who's the local CNN affiliate, who first reports officially, Christian Schmidt is going to use his bond powers tonight to amend the electoral law of the Federation entity and the constitution of the Federation entity. By mm. 8 p.m., mm. 8.05, I believe, uh, the high representative himself has issued a statement. And shortly thereafter, the actual text of his decision becomes public and thus effectively binding. I mean, it takes a few days mm. after it for it to be published in the state gazette. Yeah. But, you know, mm. it's, it's functionally in action at that point. So in other words, just, just to make clear what's happened, a internationally appointed envoy who is the chief arbiter of the Dayton Accords and whose mandate is the preservation of Bosnia's sovereignty, territorial integrity, and thus also the protection of its democracy, is changing the electoral law of the largest administrative unit in the country as votes are being counted on the day of the election itself. So mm. that's, mm. I mean, that's crazy to begin with. But then the substance of the actual decision is even more controversial because he mm. changes the way in which the House of Peoples and the Federation entity will be constituted in such fashion so as to very obviously deliver a disproportionate monopoly on power specifically to the HDZ. Mm. And, and, and we can really get into the weeds of how he does this, but it basically, it, it involves the share of delegates which will come from the HDZ's electoral heartland, and also then the kinds of powers the respective ethnic caucuses within the House of Peoples will be afforded. He lifts the level of support needed from within the individual ethnic caucuses for the nomination of the president of the federation mm. entity. And this is important because the Federation entity president is the one who not just appoints things like judges, very important, but also is the one who formally grants the mandate for government formation in the Federation entity. In other words, unless the HDZ approves of who the president of the Federation entity will be, there will be no government. And the current president of the Federation entity, Marin Kochavra, is an HDZ member who has obstructed the appointment of, of judges to the Federation Constitutional Court for years and also is presently under U.S. sanctions for having done that and mm. essentially obstructed the Dayton Accords. So that's the shortest version of wow. what has uh, just uh, happened. I mean, to put it bluntly, I mean, in a world of order, chaos rules, right? <laughs> I mean, this is, uh, there is so much order imposed and so many rules and complexity that entire PhDs could be done just on the on the chaos that ensues because of it. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's almost part of the the reason why it survives because it, it's almost that complex that 
people just lose not only interest, but they just they just get lost in it because it is just so complex Absolutely. to try Absolutely. and wrap your head around it. I, I, I really think if this was, I mean, to, to, and I've written this, you know, I think this was an exercise in shock and awe because the, there mm. is no way, there is no way that the average citizen in Bosnia, one of the poorest countries in Europe, uh, you know, where it's a daily fight for survival to put, you know, food in your children's mouths is going to keep up with, changes to the federation entity house of people's quorum requirements for the appointment of the prince i mean it's just it's absurd but what's so cynical to it uh, about it rather and and the reason why i have used the language of illiberalism not just to describe the broader sort of architecture of the bosnian post-war state but specifically what mr schmidt has done is because we know from the history of even developed Western democracies, that you actually can use the law to discriminate and disenfranchise people, right? This is the history of segregation in the American South. This is what we know was done to indigenous peoples in Australia, in Canada, in New Zealand. You can use the power of the law to take rights away from people while making it seem like everything is above board. And this is mm, what I mm. find so disturbing and cynical about what the OHR has done in the context of uh, the, the changes to the Federation Entity Electoral Law. And another thing that we must pick up on, and that's uh, that's Schmidt's uh, potential bias, or at least the, whether whether right or wrong is almost mm. irrelevant, mm. right? I mean, mm. it's the perception mm. of a conflict of interest yes. that is so overwhelming that it casts a huge shadow or any decision he might make, especially a decision like the one that gives HDZ indisputably overwhelming power going forward. What is that and why is that so important? So there's two elements to it. One, you have to understand that throughout this entire period concerning the Ljubic decision specifically, the government of Croatia, both the president and more importantly, the prime minister, where most of the actual political power is vested, have been very, very explicit about the fact that they want to amend or they want to see the amendment of Bosnia's uh, electoral laws in such a way as to empower their essentially clients in the HDZ. Mm, uh, the mm, prime minister mm. of Croatia, Andrei Plenković, is a member of the same political party as Dragan Čović, the HDZ, right? The HDZ in Croatia and its sister party in Bosnia-Herzegovina, the HDZ BIH. So they've been very, very explicit about this to the point where I've argued that contemporary Croatia has no foreign policy outside of the amendment of Bosnia's electoral laws. That sounds like a joke, but I mean it literally, Mm. because all the other major um, foreign policy interests that Croatia has had over the last 20, 25 years, it has actually achieved. It wanted to join the EU. It wanted to join NATO. It wanted to join the Schengen zone. It wanted to join the Eurozone. It wanted visa liberalization with the United States. All of those things it has accomplished. The only outstanding issue for Croatia was what it perceives to be the question of the status of the Croat community in Bosnia-Herzegovina, and to ensure Mm. that they would be, uh, or rather that the HDZ would be sort of a permanent feature of government in Bosnia, regardless of how poorly they do in in actual elections, the system had to be designed in such a way that it was impossible to form government without the HDZ. That's that's sort of the name of the game. And and that's because the HDZ supposedly is, because of its nationalistic roots, I guess, is always going to stand up for the rights of the Croat minority in Bosnia. That's right. Full stop. It's, it's because right. okay. of what Croatia and um, the HDZ party specifically refers to as the concept of legitimate representation, i.e. Mm-hmm. the 
political and democratic interests of the Croat community in Bosnia and Herzegovina cannot be represented by somebody like Željko Komšić or the SDP mm-hmm. because um, they are multi-ethnic uh, civic parties. They still parties. pro-Bosnia. <laughs> well, yeah. it, but, but it, this is the thing. It's actually worth unpacking this. Even if they are not passing policies or laws which are in any shape, way, or form imperiling the status of the Croat community in Bosnia and Herzegovina, they are illegitimate by virtue of the fact that they essentially are not members of the HDZ. Because the HDZ is, according to this narrative, the only legitimate political vehicle for the political interests of Croats in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Meaning, if you are a Croat who does not vote for the HDZ, who does not identify with its political program, either during the 1990s or presently, you are a less, you, you, you are not a true Croat. Right. Again, and this is this brings us back to, I, I again say, you know, the language of segregation, because this was, you know, mm. white Americans who were pro-integration, who were pro-civil rights, were accused by pro-segregation, anti-integrationist forces as being race traitors. You know, that was the language. <laughs> and I think if we're going to be intellectually honest, this is the same normative language that is being used in Bosnia, except we don't use the language of races because all these people look the yeah. same, sound the same, yeah. but it's on the basis of essentially ethnic discrimination, right? And, it, and it's quite cynical and disturbing in that respect. So Croatia has been very, very open about its lobbying at every international forum within the EU, within NATO, within the OSCE, in bilateral relations with the US, the UK, everyone. This has been its primary agenda item. The reason why Schmidt is implicated in all of this is not just because, for instance, the fact that he comes from the CSU, CDU political bloc in Germany, which is a member of the same party family within the European Union, the EPP, as the HDZ. It's owing to the fact that he has had a longtime relationship with the HDZ and Croatia specifically. He was awarded one of Croatia's highest state honors, um, the Ante Stracevic Award, which incidentally he shares with several convicted war criminals um, and has not (laughs) given back or, or rebuked in any meaningful sense of the term. He has spent an inordinate amount of time in Zagreb meeting with Croatian officials about Bosnia's electoral laws. He has had a series of really bizarre public interviews in which he has made all kinds of very strange statements about Bosnia and in particular about the Bosniak community. In one recent interview, he essentially likened himself to Emperor Franz Joseph of Austria-Hungary and talked about Bosnia and Bosnians writ large in these extremely uncomfortable and problematic colonialist terms. He also had a very, very strange incident in uh, earlier this year um, in the city of Gorazde, where he was asked by uh, a, a reporter from N1, again, the CNN affiliate, why it seemed like so many of his decisions and so much of his rhetoric appeared to either directly or indirectly favor the HDC. And Christian Schmidt basically had a meltdown. And I'm like, mm. I don't. I'm not joking. Like he had, he started yelling. People need to look at this video. You can find it. Like you can Google it. Just say like German diplomat in Bosnia gets angry, something to that effect. And it will pop up. Yeah. Um, And he, and he speaks in English. His English isn't terribly good, but it's clear that he's very, very upset. And he clearly has no capacity to respond to this criticism. Well, he's not a diplomat, right? There's zero diplomacy in his, in his, in his approach. So whether or not 
Christian Schmidt actually is sort of under the influence of Croatia, or shall we say the broader kind of Croat nationalist establishment, to many people, it appears like he is. And what's, I think, Mm. more troubling is that he has been insufficiently capable or unwilling to really address those charges in in a way that would assure, above all, the Bosnian public. It should also be said that he's extremely reticent to actually speak to members of the Bosnian public or even the Bosnian media. He seems to spend an inordinate amount of time in Zagreb and Germany um, speaking at public fora, speaking to media, speaking to, you know, virtually everyone and anyone under the sun. But when he's in Sarajevo, he's just kind of the man in the White Castle, right? Mm, mm, and, mm. And, and kind of inaccessible to Bosnian media, which which also I think I find on a, on a kind of basic democratic level quite distasteful. Well, it adds to the colonialism, yeah. you know, the perceptions of uh, the colonial perceptions. Yeah. Uh, and again, that's why I made the point, you know, whether he actually is uh, as biased as he appears mm-hmm. or whether there is genuine conflict of interest is near irrelevant mm-hmm. because the perception is such that it's indisputable and he's doing nothing to diminish that perception. If anything, through his actions, he's only embellishing it. It's making it uh, seem more credible. I mean, the obvious question, right, which I, which is, which you know, <laughs> I haven't heard an answer to yet, uh, is what now? I mean, what is there a? And this was a question actually asked by someone on Twitter when I uh, made mention that I'll be interviewing you. Is there an institution or what institution or authority can hold the high rep accountable for this decision? It's it's a little bit of a tricky question. So um, Jelko Komšić, the Croat member of the state presidency, has filed essentially an injunction with the Bosnian Constitutional Court and said he wants an emergency ruling for them to ascertain whether the actual content and the substance of um, the electoral law changes are in line with Bosnia's legal and democratic commitments and obligations, in particular under the European Convention on Human Rights and a whole host of other international treaties to which Bosnia is bound by its own constitution. Mm, mm. We don't know when that injunction or when that ruling will come. In principle, given that it's been filed by a member of the state presidency, it should take priority and it it should happen pretty rapidly. And Komšić has also asked that until the court rules that essentially the existing or the former electoral law and the, the laws concerning the formation of the state entity or pardon me, the entity House of Peoples, Federation Entity House mm-hmm. of Peoples, remain in place. Now, he, as the member of the presidency, the question is, can he do this? And the answer is he can, but it's a little bit finicky. We have a precedent for the Bosnian Constitutional Court overruling the decisions of a high representative, also actually dealing with electoral reforms that a former high representative, Patty Ashdown, had imposed in the city of Mostad. And then Constitutional Court found essentially that those rulings were illegitimate, or not illegitimate, but that they were discriminatory and needed to be amended further. So the court can't take away the right of the high representative to do what he did as an act, right? The bond powers are legitimate, and their use is legitimate. And he is, in that sense, the final authority on the interpretation of what should be done. The constitutional court, however, can look at the substance of what he has imposed and try to pick out threads of it that it argues are not in line with Mm. various political and democratic standards. The question of whether it will do so 
We don't know. But it's, mm. you know, it's an open, shall we say, constitutional question. And we also honestly don't know what Schmidt's response to that will be. Um, you know, if the constitutional court rules, which at least according to the Ashdown decision, it should rule against Schmidt. Everyone that I've talked to, and I, and I will say at this point, like I'm not, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a legal expert in this sense, mm, um, mm-hmm. but certainly the prevailing opinion among Bosnian legal and constitutional experts, including folks like Fadis Vahabovic, who's actually a judge, a justice on the European Court of Human Rights, he has publicly speculated that essentially the, the constitutional court will have grounds on which to overturn this decision. Whether it does so, we don't know. Mm. If it ultimately finds that the decision is fine, you know, the the law will go into effect. And then absent a decision by the Federation Entity Parliament, it, you know, will remain the law of the land. The, The bigger political issue is that there is no reason at this juncture for the HDZ to ever permit an amendment of the electoral law either vis-a-vis mm. readdressing the question of Lubitsch or implementing the seven other constitutional uh, outstanding issues because they got what they want. And the problem was always that if you implement Lubitsch without simultaneously implementing these seven other decisions, you're actually going to further entrench this ethno-sectarian model. Lubitsch mm. could be essentially, the, the impact of Lubitsch could be dulled by implementing these other rulings. But if you only implement Lubitsch, then you're up a creek. And that's kind of where where we appear to be right now. It's very much an open question as to whether there will be any kind of political will on the part of the HDZ to allow for continued conversation about constitutional reform in the Federation and in Bosnia as a whole. Again, it's just, it is so perplexing that somebody of that status could uh, make such a decision on election night that would have such deep impact on the electoral system of a, of, of a country as complex and troubled as Bosnia already is. What is the role of Croatia and Serbia as well? You've deliberated extensively on Croatia and, of course, Croatian yeah. interests. Uh, but does Serbia have a role to play as well? Yeah. So, I mean, right now, actually, as we're having this conversation, we appear to be gearing up for the next episode of, uh, mm. you know, Christian Schmidt uses his bond powers. Um, and it's another extremely contentious and convoluted and complicated issue. I, you know, one should say in context that Serbia historically has always been much a, a much more overt threat to Bosnia's sovereignty and territorial integrity. Belgrade is the direct sponsor of Milorad Dodik, the secessionist uh, political leader in the RS entity, along with Russia. Uh, Serbia was obviously, you know, directly implicated in, in the war in the 1990s, as was Croatia. And indeed, Croat nationalists, Serb nationalist forces in Bosnia were closely collaborating for, for much of the period mm. between late 1992 and into late 1994, even as in Croatia proper, they were, you know, Croatia and Serbia were essentially at war. Mm. So Bosnia in that sense has always been a little bit of a state of exception, even as far as relations between Zagreb and Belgrade are concerned. The, the, the question of Serbia's relationship with Bosnia at this juncture will, I think, really run through what we think Christian Schmidt will do next. And that is this question of state property slash state military property in the RS entity. And this is another extremely convoluted Mm. legal question. And it basically comes down to who owns large chunks of 
property, including military sites, that are physically located in what is now the RS entity? Do they rightfully belong to the state of Bosnia-Herzegovina, who can then choose to allocate it for purposes of use to lower levels of government? Or do they belong to local administrative levels of power, including the entities and or the municipalities? Mm. The most contentious of these questions has been the question, as I said, of state military properties. And the Bosnian Constitutional Court, again, has ruled on several occasions concerning some of these properties that they are state properties. Mm. And that in the absence of rulings, the the holding position is that there has to be some kind of final agreement between the respective uh, levels of government in Bosnia-Herzegovina to regulate the status of these properties. The reason why this is mm. a question at all and what the political significance of this question is, is twofold. One, normalizing and settling the question of state property status in Bosnia is part of the so-called five plus two agenda, which are the criteria that need to be met for the closure of the OHR. That's one. Right. And two, the status of state properties and state military properties specifically concerns Bosnia's aspiration to join NATO. NATO essentially has provisions that say, you know, military properties need to be under the control of the state. They cannot be mm. under the control of subnational units, whatever they may be. They, those need to be in the possession of the state. The Dodik government, the RS, has for many years obstructed the implementation of these rulings by the court and also has refused to broker any kind of agreement, uh, mm -hmm. essentially with other government authorities in Bosnia-Herzegovina uh, about these other state properties. And so now this is where we get to the last 24 hours of my life. Mm -hmm. I have been told repeatedly by various kinds of sources, including some very high-level sources in Europe, that the high representative is preparing to use his bond powers to intervene vis-a-vis -vis the question of these state properties. And he's in uh, Serbia at the moment. He, exactly. Yesterday, was, he was in yeah, Serbia yeah. meeting with various kinds of officials when I received one you know, very credible allegation from a senior source in Europe. I, I won't say more than that, obviously, as to who they are. And it should be said, I was not breaking this news per se, because... Bosnian media had been reporting on the possibility of this for weeks, and Christian Schmidt himself had given numerous public statements, which very clearly gestured at the fact that this was up next on the docket. This was mm -hmm. where, you know, his proverbial administration was heading. The question obviously was, what exactly would he do? And when would he do it? So I made a thread and a post about what I understood to be the allegations and, and, and shared my concerns about it. The Office of the High Representative this morning, uh, as well as some uh, uh, the U.S. Embassy, I believe, uh, in, in Sarajevo, issued statements clearly and phrased in such a way as to essentially rebuke my allegations, which is fair. You know, mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're mm -hmm. saying I'm incorrect. And so what do they say? So they issue the statement and the statement says several things. The first thing that the OHR says is that the state property, state military properties that the Bosnian Constitutional Court has ruled on are Bosnian state property. Great. Those are what are called prospective military sites, i.e. they are military sites that the Bosnian Armed Forces and the Ministry of Defense could operationalize in short order. However, mm -hmm. when it comes time to addressing what are called non-prospective military sites and the broader issue of other state properties on the RS entity, which includes things like individual municipal offices, for instance. The OHR says that they urge the relevant Bosnian authorities to come to an agreement about their status. Mm, 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 mm. Obviously, that agreement will not take place because Dodik will block it. 
Yeah. Christian Schmidt. And they must know this. Exactly. And Christian Schmidt has already said that he's prepared to use his mandate to then address the issue. So the Mm. question then becomes, in what fashion will he use his bond powers to address the status of non-prospective military sites in Bosnia-Herzegovina and state property more broadly? He has said in previous statements, in particular in the um, uh, press conference or the interview in which he likened himself to Emperor Franz Joseph, that his theory of wielding power in Bosnia is that uh, if he's, how did he put it? If, if all of my subjects are equally unhappy, I have done a good job. He was paraphrasing mm. Franz Joseph. <laughs> his interpretation of that vis-a-vis the electoral law was that, you know, the pro-Bosnian camp got certain kinds of efficiency mechanisms vis-a-vis uh, the implementation of the law. The HDZ got the, as he calls it, you know, the implementation of the Ljubic decision, yeah. even though they don't think that happened, um, or they claim that didn't happen. And so everyone was supposedly was equally unhappy, except the problem is mm. that the HDZ got functional monopoly on power and the other side got efficiency mechanisms, whatever that mm. means. With the question, but also the irony, the fact that it's a that, that it's bringing it again. You know, this is from a European that this is decided by sides. Yes, right. Yeah. That we're appeasing to yes. sides, which is totally contrary to what the path ought to be for Bosnia going forward. Right, and so exactly. Exactly. And so the fear now, the fear now specifically vis-a-vis this issue of state properties is that he will deliver a decision that will mm. either grant the totality of the outstanding state properties to the entity or a very significant chunk of them, right? So yeah. Dodik will not get everything that he wants. So he'll be unhappy because, you know, the armed forces will, or the yeah. Ministry of Defense will maintain ownership of blah, 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 blah. But he'll get, he'll get something. And then Sarajevo will also be unhappy because... Mind you, the question of the actual implementation of the rule of law, which mm. any meaningful understanding of which should say, no, actually, all of those state properties are, in fact, state properties and lower levels of government, whatever they may think, don't get to use them unless the state says so, as is the case in every other country on Earth. Never yeah. mind. I mean, I know for the sake of transparency, you know, I'm looking at my phone right now and I have a message from an EU official who says uh, mm-hmm. I am way off the mark in my right. assessment. So, I, you know, I want to be clear for um, the, you know, the sake of your podcast and your audience. Like I'm not obviously I think I'm right and I'm staking out mm-hmm. my position as to why I think I'm right and what I think the sequence of events from here will be. There are people who disagree with me. Absolutely. You can find them on Twitter. Well, what would be the most gracious view of all of this? What would be, uh, let's try and look at this from, Mm -hmm. let's say, from the eyes of that person that's messaged you now. How are they looking at the situation in Bosnia from the halls of power of Europe and beyond? And how could this be viewed in any kind of positive light? So positive is a funny word. In, in, In talking to a lot of these people, I don't know that anyone has necessarily a positive view. Mm-hmm. I, I think everyone sh- has the position that Bosnia is in a bad place and some tough mm-hmm. decisions need to be made. And the debate is about the nature of these tough decisions. I think the view among the people who support what Schmidt is doing is that they are trying to get Bosnia to a position of functionality because the actual status of governance in Bosnia has deteriorated so severely over the past decade, decade and a half, that we're really now at an inflection point. 
So it's a little bit like emergency surgery. Mm. The victim is bleeding out on the table. And yes, by using these surgical tools, we might risk them dying, but they'll definitely die if we don't do something. I think that's sort mm. of like the, the metaphorical a logic of the intervention. Okay. Um, and what do we mean by dying? So I think instance, there is the- In this metaphor. It's a good question. <laughs> Let's, yeah, mm. what, what do we mean by that? I think their view of dying in this context, or what I would mean here is that the nature of the political crisis in Bosnia, specifically as pertains the obstructionist activities by the HDZ and the secessionist activities by the SNSD will accelerate and become more dangerous unless steps are made to- and, and again, I don't, I don't want to use this, I, you know, I would, in my interpretation, I would say appease. They obviously don't view it that way. I think they would view it as giving everyone a buy-in into the system mm. in a sense, much as Dayton was itself, right? Not everyone gets what they want, but everyone gets enough that they can buy into the concept of a sovereign and united Bosnian state. I think that mm -hmm. is fundamentally the logic driving this forward. Mm. I think for people like myself, who, and I'm very transparent as to what my politics are, I want a Bosnia-Herzegovina whose laws and norms and constitution are actually in line with the substance of the European Convention on Human Rights, with the EU acquis, with the rulings of the ICTY and, and, and other important international courts, um, with the standards, democratic standards of the OSCE. That's the Bosnia I want to see. Mm. I think the people who are critical of my position and my view and are good faith actors, I want to be clear, you know, reasonable minds can disagree. I think they take the position that even if that is their aim, and they say that is also their aim, that they think that the way to do that, you know, has to be much more piecemeal, much more gradual, and will essentially involve a lot of steps that on the face of it look like entrenching or rather retrenching the existing ethno-sectarian structures. Mm, so mm, I think mm. they take a view that if change is to come to Bosnia, it must be far slower, far more gradual, far more glacial. Whereas, you know, I think I take the view that the current system has run out of steam. It's teetering on the edge of collapse. And if we want Bosnia to actually have a credible chance at joining or international organizations like the EU and NATO above all, which is more important to me than the EU, to be quite honest, mm. you know, we, we can't keep cutting corners and we have to actually at some point start dealing with the substance of the politics at hand and implementing them accordingly. It's interesting you mentioned, make the mention about uh, NATO being more important than EU. Why is that? In a nutshell, NATO is more important than the EU for two reasons. One, I don't think there's actually any credible chance that any of these Western Balkan states, not just Bosnia, but but the whole rest of them that are not part of the EU will join the EU at any point soon, yeah. Yeah, yeah, in, yeah. in the relevant future. They might join in 30, 40 years, but they're not going to join in the next 10 years or the next 15 years or even, I think, the next 20 years. And in political terms, that's essentially never. Because you can't mm. say to any electorate in the world, in 15 years, we're going to do X that, you know, mm. you might as well say in the year 4120. So and, and this process, it has to also be said, has been going on already for 20 years. Right. 2003 is when sort of the EU initiates this EU enlargement perspective for the Western Balkans. So 
we're 20 years down the road. It's not happening. And we know mm. that enlargement sentiment in the EU itself already has all but dissipated, mm. especially in places like France. And, and you know, the government of Emmanuel Macron has been very, very transparent about that. So that's one. Um, so, you know, EU is off the table. NATO is still at least theoretically plausible. The second reason is that I think there is a very compelling strategic reason, obviously, above all for Bosnia, but also for NATO to have Bosnia as part of the alliance. For Bosnia, NATO ensures a permanent guarantee of the country's sovereignty and territorial integrity, above all through Article 5, right? So so mm-hmm. threats to its sovereignty, either by neighboring states or even outside powers like Russia, are off the table if it's part of NATO. Two, NATO gains as a member the most strategically sensitive polity in the whole of the Western Balkans. And it locks it down permanently and it sort of takes it off the table for malign actors to screw around with and cause problems for NATO itself. Now, to be clear, I'm not making the argument that Bosnia is going to be, you know, some like massive strengthening of the alliance or, you know, what have you. Nobody's mm, making that argument. No, that's right. Yeah. But yeah. it's but clear it's a that... Destabilizing Exactly. Yeah. In particular, since, you know, since February 2022, th- there is the view within NATO that the question of enlargement has to be, you know, more multifaceted and has to also involve a strategic component for NATO itself rather than, you know, is including X or Y country going to increase our overall hard power and kinetic capacities and et cetera, et cetera. Bosnia is not going to mm. be a huge improvement in that regard, but it will mm, mm, mm. provide NATO with the ability to finally lock down the you know strategic uh, vulnerabilities that exist in the Western Balkans. And I do maintain that Bosnia is the most strategically sensitive country in the mm. region, because when you look at all of the major conflicts over the course of the last two centuries in the Western Balkans, almost all of them have run directly through and been largely centered on the question and status of Bosnia. So if you can take that mm. away, you go a huge way to stabilizing this notoriously unstable region. There are too many fault lines in Bosnia. I mean, it's it's the only one that's not homogenous, yeah. broadly speaking. Yeah. But on the question of uh, NATO and now Russia, because you made the you've implied the importance due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. What is Russia's role in Bosnia in particular, but the Western Balkans more broadly? And to what extent can Russia use the Balkans as a lever to impact Europe and NATO more broadly? So obviously, Russia maintains very close ties with Serb nationalist politicians in the region, um, both Aleksandr Vucic in, in, in Serbia, but arguably even more importantly with Milorad Dodik in Bosnia, because Dodik uh, very much comports to Moscow's preferred model of foreign relations with its proxies, which is to say, you know, when you're looking at places like South Ossetia or Abkhazia or Transnistria or some of these uh, occupied territories in Ukraine, the RS, as I said, very much comports to that model. And so the fact that Dodik is this militant, that he is this radical, that he is this extremist who's constantly threatening violence, war, political crises, really favors Russia's preferred model of engagement. And we also know in particular from some leaked documents that emerged after the collapse of the Grevsky government in what is now North Macedonia, we know from a leak uh, or from a cache of leaked documents there that Russia's formal strategic aims in the Western Balkans are to prevent NATO enlargement and that it works Mm. very closely with Serbian intelligence to that effect 
um, to to destabilize neighboring countries whenever it can in order to prevent movement towards Atlantic integration. There are some credible allegations that they may or may not have been directly involved in the events in, in what is now North Macedonia, certainly directly involved in, in a long-time uh, political instability now in Montenegro, in Kosovo as well, and and, and certainly in Bosnia-Herzegovina. It also bears stating that in the case of Bosnia, the Russian Federation has also increasingly made overtures and ties and linkages with the Croat nationalist establishment in Bosnia with uh, Mr. Chovic and his HTZ. Chovic has been to Moscow um, in March of 2020. Croatia's president, uh, Zoran Milanovic, uh, you know, is very, very close to Mr. Dodik and has become so brazen in um, you know, some of his views and antics vis-a-vis Bosnia that even the prime minister of Croatia has accused him of being a Russian asset. Folks have probably most uh, mostly heard about Zoran Milanovic if they've heard of him at all, uh, most recently in the context of him wanting to block Sweden and Finland's NATO accession until Bosnia's electoral law was amended. Mm-hmm. And most recently, mm-hmm. he has said that Ukrainian troops should not be trained on the territory of the Republic of Croatia. So, you know, there's yeah. there's a... And that if NATO fights Russia openly, that uh, Croatia would not send its forces That's as right, well, right. Which, so he's a, he's which a is very, sending tremors through NATO. Yeah, yeah. exactly. He's a, he's a very contentious and controversial figure. And, and he's also part of this kind of broader, I, I would say, network of actors who either explicitly have ties to the Russian Federation or, or who are widely suspected of the same. And so, and and mm. they're not just in Serbia and, and Bosnia, right? So it is people like Dodik and Vucic, mm. but it is also people like Milanovic. It's people like Janez Jansha in Slovenia. It's people like Viktor Orban in Hungary. And mm. all of them, incidentally, have very, very similar views on Bosnia. And they and they very, very mm. much cohabitate um, in terms of their policies towards Bosnia. So, there, you know, I know at times, um, and certainly those who are very critical of my work, accuse me of, of sort of peddling conspiracy theories or some such. But I think, again, and, you know, any honest assessment of what is going on very clearly gestures at the existence of these networks and the existence of these relationships. You know, to what extent at any mm, given moment mm, mm. these people are interacting with each other, we obviously can't know for sure. But there's been numerous episodes over the last few years that have very clearly indicated that, you know, th- there mm. is a there is an understanding and there is a kind of broader political project that if enacted fully and totally would mean very, very bad and destabilizing things for Bosnia in particular, but I think the region more broadly. And what would that look like? Because I mean, this is this is kind of what we're we're talking about—some sort of a, an idea of some sort of a master plan. What what is that? Is that the dissolution of uh, Bosnia as we know today? Is that a third entity? Is that a complete split secession of RS and uh, mm-hmm. and Herzeg Bosna that it goes to Croatia? I mean, wh- what are we talking about? What what is at stake here? So it depends on any given you know in any given moment as to who you're talking to and, and sort of how far down <laughs> mm. the rabbit hole you want to go. But what I would remind us of is is the so-called Balkan non-papers. Um, uh, which emerged about two years ago, and were widely suspected of having been drafted um, in the office and the cabinet of then Slovenian Prime Minister Janez Janša, although it's understood mm. that he must have sort of coordinated their their writing and their composition with a number of other important political figures in the region. In any case, the the, the Balkan non-paper, as it was called, its existence was confirmed not only by leaks to media, but also by Edi Rama, the president of Albania, and the then high representative in Bosnia, Valentininsko, saying that they had essentially been aware of the existence of such documents for, for a long time. And Rama at least said that Yana Yansha had directly showed him, you know, and, and discussed mm, with him mm, the contents mm, of mm. the papers. And the contents of the papers themselves 
um, the most sort of significant controversial aspect of which was essentially proposing the wholesale territorial reorganization of the Western Balkans, not just Bosnia, but other states. And it essentially came down to the idea of functionally partitioning Bosnia between Serbia and Croatia so that Croatia would get some of these Croat majority areas uh, of, of Bosnia, in particular Western Herzegovina. Serbia would essentially get the entirety of the RS entity. You would have a kind of rump sort of Bosniak ethnic statelet that would be left in between the two of them. You would have the north of Kosovo also being appended to Serbia, but then most of the remainder of Kosovo essentially going to Albania and the creation of a kind of greater Albania, um, as well as potentially some ethnic Albanian majority areas in North Macedonia, potentially also going to Albania. And then also potentially some open conversation about the status of both Serb and Albanian communities in Montenegro. So obviously, mm, you know, mm, mm. this is... The redesign of the Western yes, Balkans, basically. And, and I mean, the, the, the obvious question is, how would you do this? How would you do this without major rounds of violence and new rounds of essentially ethnic cleansing um, and, and potentially even genocide? But the fact that this was being very seriously floated and discussed in key cabinets was, was I think, hugely alarming. And I think there is the view among certainly many people in Bosnia, but I think more regionally also that one of the things that's happened in the sort of broader breakdown in the legitimacy and credibility of the Western community, both the US and the EU and the Western Balkans, is that these kinds of, you know, sinister machinations that formerly would have been kind of dismissed out of hand as the, you know, the, as the, as the ravings of, of, of lunatics now actually enjoy a little bit of political currency. And again, I remind mm. you that, mm. that there was a moment during the Trump administration and the previous EU um, commission when Serbia and Kosovo under Aleksandar Vucic and Hashim Tachi openly and quite seriously discussed the possibility of a so-called land swap, wherein some of these Serb-majority northern municipalities in Kosovo would go to Serbia and a small section of Serbia in the far south of Serbia, which has a Albanian majority in the Perecevo Valley would, would go to Kosovo. And mm, this appeared mm, to enjoy mm. not just the support of the Trump administration, it also seemed to enjoy the support of uh, Federica Mogherini, who was the then foreign policy chief of the EU. That, I think, for many people was a really stark wake-up call, that you had very, very important people in power in the West who seemed to be quite willing to go down essentially the rabbit hole, as I said, of sort of new rounds of ethnic partition in the Western Balkans. Mm. So this is this is kind of the, the the context I think for a lot of the conversation that we've had. Mm. My last question to you is: To what extent is Bosnia and Herzegovina facing risks of another war, and who would fight it? So, well, here's the thing: that 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 let's let's take the easier question. I used to have that view that there's no one left to fight wars in Bosnia or in the Balkans because of the the, the sheer scale of the immigration crisis. Um, you know, the fact that almost all these countries are facing demographic collapse, um, you know, that the, the population is aging disproportionately, et cetera, et cetera. But the sad reality is it doesn't take a lot of people to fight a war. You need a couple mm -hmm. angry young men with a few duffel bags of cash, booze, drugs, and guns, all of which are readily available. And we don't have to have a war on the scale of what we had in the 1990s. We only need to have something on the scale of, say, the Troubles in uh, North Ireland uh, during much of mm -hmm. the 60s or 70s and 80s for the situation for both the region and regional peoples and Europe to become completely untenable, right? So we don't have mm. to have the mm. kind of set-piece battles that we had in the 90s. We just need to have the occasional bombing and, 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 and you know, shootout and, and, and whatever else. 
and I mean, that's horrific to say, and I, you know, yeah. I'm aware that it sounds like I'm being glib, but I'm not at all. I mean, this would be a catastrophe. So that's one. I think there are people capable and willing to fight wars, albeit likely lower scale wars mm. than what we saw in the 90s. More insurgencies. Uh, than, yeah, than wars, exactly. Really, yeah. And in terms of, you know, is it plausible? Again, I think the stuff that we saw in the 90s is largely implausible, at least at this juncture. I'm not saying that it might not become plausible at some future date. I think that objectively, Bosnia and the region as a whole has become less safe and less stable, as I said earlier, than it was 15 years ago. So by that mm -hmm. metric, you know, we are further down the road towards some kind of conflict than we were a decade ago. Now, I'm not willing to give numbers, are we, you know, 25% or 75% or, you know, mm, mm, but mm. my position is that the situation has already become very, very dangerous, very, very delicate. And we've had numerous incidents in the region over the last few years that if things had gone just a little bit to the left or just a little bit to the right, we would be dealing with a much worse reality presently, right? I mean, when you talk about the sack of yeah. the Macedonian parliament in 2017, you know, you nearly had the incoming prime minister beaten to death on the floor of the parliament. Had that happened, God knows what would have happened to Macedonia. Mm -hmm. If in October of 2016, when you had the uh, Russian-Serbian-backed coup attempt, or what is alleged to be a Russian-Serbian-backed coup attempt in Montenegro, if somebody had died in the context of that, or if in fact, you know, the, the president as having been one of the primary targets, apparently, of, of, of um, the, 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 the coup attempt, Mila Djukanovic, whatever you make of him, he's a controversial figure, mm -hmm. but had something happened to him, that would have been explosive. And we've had a whole host of near-miss incidents, politically and otherwise, in Bosnia and Herzegovina, that, again, had they gone a little, you know, an inch here or an inch there, would have had disastrous consequences. So this is the thing. I We've gotten lucky for a very, very long time. And luck runs out eventually. And I, yeah. I find it extremely disturbing, uh, the idea that so much of Western policy towards the region is coasting essentially on luck rather than on, on you know, real strategic vision. And that issue is compounded even further by the fact that the rise of China, Russia, right. uh, failure in Afghanistan, Iran, uh, North Korea, etc., all of these other hotspots yeah. uh, that are diverting attention of the world more broadly, that of course gives enough, enough breathing space mm. uh, and creates a vacuum in the Balkans that's uh, inevitably, at least some are seeking to exploit it, whether it is or not, uh, is yet to be determined. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there it's, you know, unfortunately, in this sense, the the, the kind of the classic stereotype about the Balkans, uh, you know, as a, as, as a proverbial tinderbox, I, I, I'm, I'm afraid increasingly is accurate. There's, there's way too much dry kindling for something not to set it off sooner or later, unless there is a really serious comprehensive commitment to, to pouring some water on the kindling yeah 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 yasmin uh, on that note we're just shy of two hours i knew this would be a fascinating discussion uh, having read some of your work and listened to some of your other discussions uh, but i've been blown away by how uh, by your ability to synthesize something so complex as bosnia uh, into something that uh, i'm hoping most of our audience uh, will understand uh, and realize the significance of. Uh, so thank you very much. It's been uh, lovely speaking to you and uh, great to see a, a fellow Bosnian doing so well. Thank you very much. It's, uh, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Voices of War. And since you got this far, please take a moment to like and review the show wherever you get your pods. Also, 
If you're able, please consider showing your support through our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. Thank you, and until the next time.